Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. My name is David Burton. I'm Senior Fellow in Economic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. This is the inaugural lecture of a speaker series that we've started calling Free Markets, the Ethical Economic Choice. Uh, the speaker series will uh, examine the morality or ethics of different ways of organizing our economic life from a variety of perspectives. Uh, and Dr. Walter E. Williams uh, is our first speaker today, and he's going to be speaking on the subject of the role of government in a free society. Uh, Dr. Williams is the John M. Olin Distinguished Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Uh, he is a, has been a member of GMU's faculty since 1980, and he was chairman of the university, university's economics department from 1995 to 2001. He'd previously been on the faculty of a variety of universities, including Los Angeles City College, California State University, Temple University, and Grove City College. He's the author of over 150 academic publications, which have appeared in a wide variety of scholarly journals, a list of which is available at WalterEWilliams.com, a site that I would commend to you. He's been a nationally syndicated columnist for many years, and he is also the author of 10 books, including Do the Right Thing, The People's Economist Speaks, Liberty Versus the Tyranny of Socialism, Controversial Essays, and American Contempt for Liberty. He's made two documentaries for PBS, Good Intentions and Suffer No Fools. He's known to many as a guest host uh, of the Russell and Ball Show. He holds a bachelor's in economics from California State University and an MA and PhD degree in economics from UCLA. Uh, Dr. Williams is going to talk for a while, and then we'll have uh, audience questions and answers. And I guess the only other thing I would like to mention is that the next two events are coming up relatively soon. On September 20th, Dr. Uh, John uh, Tomasi, of uh, Brown University will be here to talk about free market fairness. And on October 11th, Sir Roger Scruton, a prominent British conservative philosopher, will be here. Uh, and that will be the one event that has an interview format. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Williams. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Um, the title of my talk uh, is the... Uh, legitimate role of government in a free society. Now, in the course of my uh, comments, I'm going to say many things that will part from conventional wisdom, 
of things that may sound uh, mean-spirited or uncaring or politically incorrect. And to the extent that any of those things are true, you should feel free to raise any question you wish. Uh, you need not feel as though you owe me any undue courtesy because I'm your guest. Uh, raise hard questions. And don't worry about insulting me. I, I am uninsultable. <laughs> the only way you could possibly do that is suggest that I was not pretty good in basketball. <laughs> and that's a matter of ethnic pride that I take seriously. <laughs> Um, one of the justifications for the growth of government in our country, far beyond that envisioned by the uh, founders, is to promote fairness and justice. And that might be a worthy goal, but we might also ask, what is fairness and justice? And what is the legitimate role of government in a free society? Let me spend just a few minutes uh, discussing what the founders uh, saw as the legitimate role of government. And to do that, let's turn to the rule book that they gave us, namely the United States Constitution. Most of the what the founders or the framers of the Constitution saw as the legitimate role for the federal government is found in Article One, Section 8 of the United States Constitution. And let me just briefly quote sections thereof. It says that Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States. Uh, Congress is also authorized to borrow money on the credit of the United States uh, to regulate commerce between foreign nations and among the several states and the Indian tribes. Uh, the Constitution also authorizes Congress to coin money, establish post office and post roads, and raise and support armies. The framers granted Congress taxing and spending uh, powers for these and a few other activities. Now, nowhere in the Constitution, the United States Constitution, do we find authority for Congress to tax and spend for up to three-quarters of what Congress taxes and spends for today. In other words... There's no constitutional authority for farm subsidies, bank bailouts, food stamps, business bailouts, not to mention midnight basketball. I think that we can safely say that we have made a significant departure from the constitutional principles of individual liberty, and limited government that made us a rich nation in the first place. And these principles of freedom were embodied in our nation through the combined institutions of private ownership of property and free enterprise. 
Now, through numerous successful attacks, private property and free enterprise are mere skeletons of their past. And Thomas Jefferson anticipated this when he said, the natural progress of things is for government to gain ground and for liberty to yield. The best way of looking at this process of government gaining ground and liberty yielding is to look at what has happened to government taxation and spending. There's only one way to look at taxes. Taxes represent government claims on private property. And indeed, if government were to tax private property at 100%, it would destroy private property. An even better measure of what the government does and how we're losing our liberties is to look at what has happened to spending by government. And to put it in perspective, in 1902, expenditures at all levels of government, I mean federal, state, and local levels of government, totaled $1.7 billion. In 1902, the average taxpayer paid $60 a year in federal, state, and local taxes. In fact, from 1787 until 1925, Federal expenditures were only 3% of the GDP, except during wartime. Today, federal expenditures alone are close to 25% of the GDP. State and local governments spend over $3 trillion, federal government over $4 trillion. The average taxpayer today pays more than $10,000 a year in federal, state, and local taxes. Now, what does this mean? It means that as time goes by, you and I own less and less of our most valuable property, namely ourselves and the fruits of our labor. Another way of looking at this is to recognize that the average taxpayer works from January 1st until about May 8th to pay federal, state, and local taxes. Now, what that means is that we're going on five months out of the year, and we do not have rights to decide how the fruits of our labor will be used. Somebody else makes the decision how five months of the fruits of our labor will be used. Now, keep in mind, a working definition of slavery is that you work all year and it is someone else to decide how the fruits of your labor will be used. Now, in the economic sphere, the founders thought that relatively free markets, or what's, what's called capitalism sometimes, is the most effective social organization for the promotion of individual freedom. Indeed, capitalism is defined as a system wherein individuals are free to pursue their own interests so long as they do not violate 
the property rights of others. In capitalism, there's voluntary exchange. There are private property rights held in goods and services. And indeed, much of the original intent of the United States Constitution, as seen in a document itself, the Federalist Papers, and other papers that debated the Constitution in 1787, was to bring about a climate in which this kind of social organization could occur. Now, the great benefit of the free enterprise system is that through private ownership and control, it minimizes the capacity of one person to coerce another person. Additionally, the coercive powers of the state are limited to the legitimate functions of the state. And what are the legitimate functions of the, of the state in a free society? Well, one legitimate function is to protect you and me against international thugs violating our private property rights. So that means that one legitimate function of government is to provide for national defense. Another legitimate function of government in a free society is to, at some level, to prevent domestic thugs from violating our private property rights. And so that says that there should be the provision of police services. And by the way, when I talk about private property rights, I'm talking about ourselves. That is, I am my property. I belong to Walter Williams, and you belong to yourself. Other legitimate functions is to provide for the adjudication of disputes, the enforcement of constitutional order, and the provision of certain public goods, public goods as an economist would define them. Now, some some people might say, some of your legal friends might say, well, this Williams guy has a very, very narrow interpretation of the Constitution because the Constitution is a living document. Well, anybody who says that the Constitution is a living document is also saying at the same time, we do not have a Constitution. That is, the Constitution represents the rules of the game. And for the rules of the game to mean anything, they must be fixed. They can't be living. Or think of it another way. How many of you would like to play me poker this afternoon and the rules be living? That is, maybe my two pair under certain circumstances could beat your three of a kind. Now, now the framers, in their wisdom, they did give us Article 5 because they anticipated we might have, might have to make changes to the Constitution. But we've made changes to the Constitution in the, uh, either in the Supreme Court or in the hallways of Congress with, uh, beyond Article 5. Now, for the past half century, free enterprise and what it implies had been under unrelenting attack. Americans from all walks of life, whether they realize or not, have demonstrated a deep and abiding contempt for private property and economic freedom. 
Free enterprise is threatened today not because of its failure. Somewhat ironically, it's threatened because of its success. That is, free enterprise or capitalism has been so successful in eliminating the traditional problems of mankind, such as disease, pestilence, gross hunger, I mean, hunger and gross poverty, that all other human problems appear to us to be at once inexcusable and unbearable. The desire by many Americans to eliminate these so-called unbearable and inexcusable problems has led us away from those basic ideals and principles upon which our prosperous nation was built. In the name of other ideals, such as equality of income, sex and race balance, affordable housing, medical care, orderly markets, consumer, uh, uh, consumer protection, energy conservation, just to name a few, we have abandoned many personal freedoms. As a result of widespread by government, in an effort to achieve these so-called higher objectives, we are increasingly being subordinated to a point where considerations of personal liberty in our country are but secondary and tertiary matters. That is, considerations of personal liberty in our country are increasingly being treated as dirt. Now, you might say, well, Gee, isn't this William, this Williams guy, isn't he exaggerating? Well, imagine the following scenario. I write a letter to the United States Congress. I tell them, my name is Walter Williams. I am an emancipated adult. I am fully capable of taking care of my own retirement needs. If I fail to do so, let me go begging or die on the streets, but stop taking money out of my check for Social Security. How do you think that'd be greeted? Be greeted with contempt. And imagine if they, if they, if the government told us how much we should take out of our check for housing, for education, for food, for entertainment. We say that's tyranny. Well, what's the difference between telling us how much we should take out of our check for retirement? Now, the ultimate end to this process, ladies and gentlemen, is totalitarianism, which is nothing more than a reduced form of servitude. Now, I am not saying that we are a totalitarian nation yet. But if you ask the, if you ask the question, which way are we headed, tiny steps at a time, are we headed towards more personal liberty or are we headed towards more government control of our lives? It have to unambiguously be the latter. Now, remember, if you take tiny steps towards any goal, it's just a matter of when you're going to get there. Or as the great philosopher David Hume said, it is seldom that liberty of any kind is lost all at once. It's always lost bit by bit. 
Or as my late colleague, Leonard Reed, he described it another way. Leonard Reed was the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education, the first free market foundation in our country. And Leonard Reed tells a story that if you wanted to take liberty away from Americans, you had to know how to cook a frog. Leonard Reed said, you cannot cook a frog by putting on a pot of boiling water and then throwing the frog in the water because the frog's reflexes are so quick as soon as his feet touched the boiling water, he would hop away and be free. Leonard Reed said the way to cook a frog is to put the frog in the water and heat it up bit by bit. And by the time the frog realized he was being cooked, it was too late. That's the same thing with Americans. If anybody came over here talking about taking away all of our liberties all at once, we would righteously rebel. But they can talk about taking away our liberties as they are bit by bit. Now, the primary justification for the attack on private property, economic freedom, and privacy can be found in people's desire for government to do good. We all say things that, like, government should care for the poor. Government should help the disadvantaged. Government should help the elderly. Government should help failing businesses, college students, and other deserving segments of our society. Well, it might be nice to say that, but we have to recognize that government has no resources of its very own. What I mean by that, ladies and gentlemen, those programs coming out of Washington or out of your state capitals, they don't represent congressmen and legislators reaching in their own pockets to send out the money. Moreover, there's no tooth fairy or Santa Claus giving them the money. When you recognize that government has no resource of its very own, that forces you to recognize that the only way the government can give one American one dollar is through, is first through intimidation, threats, and coercion, confiscate that dollar from some other American. Now, if you believe I'm being too loose with the terminology, intimidation, threats, and coercion, well, you have April 15th next year to check me out on this. As you can tell the agents of the United States government or the agents of the United States, of the United States Congress that I'm willing to pay for the constitutionally mandated functions of the federal government, but I'm not willing to have my money going to poor people, to farmers, to bail out big banks. You will see all the intimidation, threats, and coercion that you want to. And if you act too ugly, you'll be sent to jail. And if you resist, you'll get shot by the agents of the United States government. That is, we Americans, we support government doing things that if a private person did the identical thing, we would roundly condemn him as an ordinary, low-down, despicable thief. Let me give you an example of this. <laughs> Suppose I see an elderly lady sleeping on a grate in the dead of winter, in downtown Washington. The lady needs some medical attention, some shelter, and food. 
I could walk up to one of you with a gun in my hand and I could say, give me your $200. Then having gotten your $200, I go down and buy the lady some medical attention, some food, and, and shelter. Would you find me guilty of having committed a crime? Yes, you would, regardless of what I did with the money. Now, most Americans can agree with that. Now, is there any conceptual distinction between that act and when the agents of the United States Congress, namely IRS, say, Williams, you know that $200 you made last week that you planned to buy a nice bottle of Lafitte Rothschild Bordeaux wine with it? You will not do that with the money. You'll give it to us, and we will go downtown and help the lady out. I assert that there's no conceptual distinction between those two acts. And if you press me for a distinction, I can finally, I can find only one, and it ought to be irre irrelevant to moral people. That is the first act where I walked up to one of you with a gun and took your $200. That is illegal theft. The second act where the government walked up to me and took my $200, that is legal. It's just a matter of legality. And for moral people, legality alone cannot be our guide because there are many things in this world that were or are legal but clearly immoral. That is, slavery was legal. Did that make it moral? Apartheid in South Africa was legal. The Nazi persecution of the Jews, the Stalinism, the Maoist purges, they're all legal. But were they moral? So what you and I must answer is, is there a moral case for taking the property of one person and giving it to another to whom it does not belong? Now, in my many years of life, I have not come up with a legal justification for that. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I believe in helping our fellow man in need. And I believe that reaching in one's own pockets to help one's fellow man in need is praiseworthy and laudable. Reaching in somebody else's pockets to help one's fellow man in need is worthy of condemnation. And for the Christians among us, when God gave Moses the commandment, thou shalt not steal, he probably did not mean thou shalt not steal unless you got a majority vote in the United States Congress. Now, in a free society, we want most if all, not all of our relationships to be voluntary, we want to minimize voluntary exchange, involuntary exchange. You know, matter of fact, one way I like to look at it, some people get hung up over voluntary versus involuntary. I like to say, I love seduction. That's what voluntary exchange is. And what's the essence of seduction? Seduction is when we proposition our fellow man the following way. We say to him, if you make me feel good, I'll make you feel good. And for those who remember your game theory, that's a positive sum game. And so young, I know some of you people are young in here, you know, hormones and uproar.
and you and you haven't actually looked at seduction meaningfully. When I go into my grocer, I have three dollars in my hand. I proposition him. I say, if you make me feel good, give me that gallon of milk. I'll make you feel good. Give you the three dollars. He's better off because he valued the three dollars more than the milk. And I'm better off because I value the milk more than $3. Now, rape, on the other hand, or involuntary exchange, can be described in the following way. That is, I proposition with my grocer is that if you don't make me feel good, give me that gallon of milk. I'm going to make you feel bad, blow your brains out. Clearly, I'm better off, but he's worse off. And that you recall, is a zero-sum game. Now, some people might say, well, you know, all these things, Williams, you rail against, uh, you have to recognize that we are a democracy and majority rules. Well, first, I try to tell people, well, look, our framers did not intend for us to be a democracy. Matter of fact, they had utter contempt for democracy. And matter of fact, if you look at, I mean, do we pledge allegiance to the flag for the democracy for which it stands? Or was it that the song during 1865 was it the battle hymn of the democracy? No, it's republic. The frame is intended for us to be republic. But more important than that, I would say that um, a majority consensus does not establish morality. Uh, just because we all agree to rape somebody does make it right. Now, some people will argue, and you hear this a lot on college campuses, that a powerful government is necessary to protect us from powerful business like IBM, Exxon, AT&T. Well, despite the bigness and alleged power of these businesses, what kind of power do they really have over us? In other words, in order for Exxon to get a dollar out of me, what must happen? Well, I must voluntarily get out of my chair, voluntarily get in my car, and voluntarily drive up this man's lot, and voluntarily buy some gasoline from him. What kind of power does he have over me? Not very much. Now, I would be somewhat remiss if I did not point out that big business can that power of us, whether we want to, they can get our money, whether we want to give it to them and give it to them or not. But they, what do they have to do first? They must get permission from the United States Congress to rip us off. For example, some of the farmers are having difficulty in our country. Now they know where I live. The farmers know where I live. I live in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Now the farmers can come and knock on my door and say, uh, uh, "Buddy, we're having trouble. Can you spare a dime?" Now, I probably tell the farmers to go play in the traffic. And so, and so they know that. So the farmers will go to their elected representatives and say, look, if we ask Williams to voluntarily help us out, he's going to tell us to go play in the traffic. So can you, you, can you use your agents to take his money? That's how businesses and others can get money from us, whether we want to give it to them or not. Now, the free market and voluntary exchange are roundly denounced by today's defenders of the new human rights. These defenders are the chief supporters of reduced private property rights, reduced 
rights to profits, they're anti-competition and pro-monopoly. These people are pro-coercion and control by the state. These people, in our country and elsewhere, they believe that they are more intelligent and have superior wisdom to the masses. And they believe that they have been ordained to forcibly impose that wisdom on the rest of us. And of course, they have good reasons. They have what they consider to be good reasons for restricting the liberties of others. But I'm here to tell you that every tyrant that has ever existed has had what the tyrant believed to be good reasons for restricting the liberty of others. In the process of restriction, they they want to call, they call for the elimination or the attenuation of the market. Now, why do tyrants want to eliminate the market or to at least restrict it? Well, the market implies voluntary transactions. And tyrants do not trust that people behaving voluntarily will do what the tyrant thinks that they want that they ought to do. So they want to replace the market through um, through economic planning. Now, I'll give you a definition of economic planning that will last you the rest of your lives. Economic planning is nothing more than the forcible superseding of somebody else's plan by the powerful elite. For example, my daughter might plan to work for the hardware store guy down the street for $4 an hour. She says it's okay. The hardware store guy says it's okay. Her mother says it's okay. And her father says it's okay. But the powerful elite will say, we're going to cancel that plan because it's not being transacted at the prices we think it ought to be transacted at. Or I might want to buy a Harley Davidson. I might want to buy a Honda bike from a Japanese producer. The powerful elite will say, Williams, we're going to supersede that plan through tariffs and quotas because we think you ought to buy a Harley Davidson. Now, the powerful elite, they ignore the fact, or these do-gooders, they ignore the fact that most of the good done in the world is not done in the name of good. If you ask me, Williams, what's that human motivation that gets the most wonderful things done? I would say greed. I love greed. I'm not talking about ripping off people, stealing, and all these other dishonest acts. I'm talking about people trying to get as much as they can for themselves. Now, you might not have considered this way. Consider that. Well, let me ask you this question. You, you, you're, you're going to have Texas farmers, I mean, Texas ranchers, or Texas ranchers last winter. They're out in blizzards trying to rain, run down stray cows, trying to take care of them, feed them. Making this personal sacrifice so that New Yorkers will have beef on their shelves. You have Idaho farmers getting up doing back-breaking work, bugs biting them, dirt underneath their fingernails, sun beating down them, uh, to make sure that they get potatoes to New York, to the citizens of New York. Now, why do you think they're doing that? Do you think they're doing that because they love New Yorkers? 
they may hate New Yorkers. I'm not that well about New Yorkers myself. But they make sure that beef and potatoes gets to New York every single day of the week. Why? Because they want more for themselves. This is what Adam Smith was talking about in The Wealth of Nations, that the public good is promoted the best by the private interests. Now, I ask the question, um, how much beef and potatoes do you think New Yorkers would have if it all depended on human love and kindness? I'd be worried about New Yorkers. Uh, let me give you just another example of the uh, virtue of self-interest. You know, some people say, Williams, instead of using greed, since you're trying to win friends and influence people, why don't you, recess, say, enlighten self-interest? I like greed better. It's a little more descriptive. <laughs> but let me give you another example of virtue of self-interest and private property rights. I've often said, and some people have condemned me for this, is that I don't care much about future generations of Americans. And sometimes people are in shock. And they say, Williams, how come you don't care about future generations? Well, my response was, is that what have future generations ever done for me? I mean, some kid that's going to be born in 2050, what has he done for me? And if he hasn't done anything for me, how then am I obliged to do anything for him? Where is the quid pro quo? Well, if you watch my actual behavior, my behavior would belie that sentiment. That is, I have a nice spread in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And several years ago, I took about $400 that I could have consumed selfishly, maybe buy two bottles of Chateau de Kemp Sauternes wine. But I used that money instead to plant trees, seedlings around my property. Now, when those trees reach their full maturity, I'll be dead. There'll be some 20, 50 kids swinging in my trees and eating my apples. Mrs. Williams made extensive improvements to our house, with my money, by the way. <laughs> A beautiful sunroom. That sunroom is going to outlast both of us. There'll be some 20 kid, 20, 50 kid uh, tracking sun, uh, tracking mud in my sunroom. Well, what might explain the reason I sacrifice current consumption to produce something that's going to long outlast me? Well, the answer is very easy. The nicer my house is, the longer it will provide housing services, what? The higher the price I get when I go to sell it. That is, by, by pursuing my own narrow self-interest, I can't help but avoid. I can't help uh, but make a house available for future generations. And ask yourself, would I have the same incentives to care for my house if the house were owned by government? Or if there were a 75% transfer tax when I went to sell the house? Anything that weakens my private property rights interest in the house would weaken my incentive to do the socially responsible thing, namely, conserve on the scarce resources of our society. Now, let me begin to close. Uh, I'm skipping pages, and so you guys are going to spend the rest of your lives not knowing these things. But one of, our, one of our problems in our society is that almost every group feels that the government owes them 
a special privilege or favor. And conservatives are by no means exempt from the practice. Manufacturers feel that government owes them protective tariffs to keep foreign goods out so they can charge you and me higher prices. Farmers feel that government owes them crop subsidies. Organized labor feels that government ought to keep their jobs protected from people who are not union members. College professors and intellectuals feel that government owes them, uh, should give them funds for to do research. College professors love to get $500,000, $300,000 grants to do studies on poverty and meet at a nice hotel in Miami during the winter to talk about poor people. They just love that. Conservatives rail against food stamps, aid to families and dependent children, legal aid, but they come out and support for aid to dependent farmers, aid to dependent banks, and aid to dependent motorcycle companies. Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals, prove H.L. Mencken's definition of an election quite correct. H.L. Mencken, for, the, for, for us who don't remember, he was a political satirist of the Baltimore Sun. Somebody asked H.L. Mencken to give a definition of an election. And H.L. Mencken replied, government is a broker in pillage. And every election is an advance auction on the sale of stolen goods. Now, to the extent H.L. Mencken is correct, we've identified our problem. Too many of us want to blame politicians for our problems. And yeah, we can blame them a little bit. But the bulk of the blame lies with you and me. Politicians are doing precisely what you and I vote for them to do. That is, to use the power of their office to take what belongs to one American and bring it back to us. Any politician not doing that, we would not elect to office. Imagine I'm running for the Senate in your state. And I go back and forth across your state, and I say, look, I've read the United States Constitution. If you elect me to the Senate, don't expect for me to bring back highway construction funds, aid to higher education, you know, and billions and billions of dollars and other uh, uh, forms of handouts. Do you think I would get elected to the Senate from your state? I would. And the people of your state would, do, would be doing precisely the correct thing by not electing me to office, because if I don't bring back billions and billions of dollars, well, it doesn't mean that, for example, the citizens of Virginia would pay a lower federal income tax. All that it means is that the people in Maryland would get it instead. That is, once legalized theft begins, it pays for everybody to participate. Let me say in closing that I think that our government has become destructive of the ends it was created to serve. I think that our founders would be very disappointed with you and me if they were to come back and see that we have developed in a class of people that prefers uh, safety to liberty. But the optimistic note for us is that we Americans have not done the wrong thing for a long time. But we better get about setting our house in order while we still 
have the freedom to do so. Thank you very much. If you have questions, I'll try to answer. Hello, sir. Um, Michael Webb, Arlington, Virginia. Uh, very, very interested in, in your discussion. Uh, question is, do we view, with it confined to the, uh, I guess, legitimate functions of government space, do we view that as a social contract to stick with the idea in terms of an exchange, uh, a free market, or do we tolerate uh, illegal theft? Well, I, I think that... Uh, uh, Illegal, if you read the Constitution and the papers that debated the Constitution, legalized theft was not in the vision of the framers. As a matter of fact, this column I wrote uh, this week we're referring to uh, the Kavanaugh hearings, and I point out that one of the best visions for, for Congress and for the federal government was laid out by James Madison, the acknowledged father of the United States Constitution, and if you read Federalist Paper 45, you can see this. And in Federal, Federalist Papers were written by John Jay and Hamilton and Madison trying to convince the citizens of New York and elsewhere to ratify the Constitution. It was not an easy job ratifying the Constitution because the states feared the federal government. But if you read Federalist Paper 45, where, uh, where James Madison was saying, he said that, the powers that we delegated to the federal government are few and well-defined and limited mostly to external affairs. The powers left with the people and the states are indefinite and numerous. Now, if you turn that upside down, you have what we have today. The powers of the federal government are indefinite and numerous, and those of the people and the states are limited. And so... The framers had, uh, saw, rightfully saw that the, that the government was an enemy of the people. But they recognized that we do need some government, but we need to keep it as small as possible. And keep in mind, most Americans have not been taught about the history of our country. Keep in mind that in, if we read through the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that ended the war between the colonies and Great Britain, the Treaty of Paris, I believe by the second paragraph, says that there are 13 sovereign and independent nations. That is Pennsylvania, Virginia. They were independent sovereign nations. And these nations came together to delegate some of that power to the federal government. They feared the federal government. Matter of fact, the anti-federalists, such as uh, Jefferson and Madison and uh, and uh, uh, George Mason and some others, they feared the power of the federal government, and they did rightfully so. So, uh, um, so to an I hope I have gone a long way to answer to try to answer your question. Uh, Thank you, uh, Professor Williams. My question is about: um, Is it a public good to provide? 
welfare if that provi- the provision of that welfare or handout maintains our constitutional order. I'm referring here to the argument that if um, that were that was made in England when the first poor laws were passed, that if we don't provide bread, they will um, they will riot and come at us with pitchforks. Is that a public good then? No, not in my opinion. That is, if people are, bang, uh, are disobeying the law and rioting, uh, put them in jail. I mean, as opposed to letting, let, let saying, well, we better give this person some money so that he doesn't riot. Um, well, a, a public good, a public good is, uh, from an economic standpoint, is a good that that benefits every American as opposed to individual Americans. For example, national defense is a public good. That is, a public good is a kind of good that, whereby uh, you cannot exclude those who don't pay from enjoying it. That is, if I don't pay any taxes, uh, I can still enjoy public, uh, I can still enjoy uh, national defense. It's just too costly. Let the Soviet Union, let Russia know that every American is protected except Walter Williams, so you can bomb his place. Thanks for coming. My name is Anne. Um, I was wondering if you could give an example of a tariff that you think would be justified uh, and then maybe a tariff that you think would not be justified. Well, I, I don't think that I don't think that any tariff is justified. That is, I believe in peaceable voluntary exchange. Now, uh, if you look at the current controversy in our country, where people are essentially saying, at least the president is saying, that, well, for example, that Canada imposes heavy tariffs on our dairy products. Uh, And so, and what that means is that Canadians pay higher prices for dairy products. And that's why the tariffs are on U.S. imports of, uh, of dairy products to Canada, so that dairy producers can get higher prices. Okay, so, so, uh, so, so what the president is saying, well, look, we're going to put tariffs on Canadian wood coming into our country. We're going to make, we're going to force Americans to pay higher prices for uh, Canadian wood, you know, the, in, in the housing business. So that's kind of saying that we're going to, when Canada screws its consumers by forcing them to pay higher prices for dairy products, we're going to retaliate against Canada by screwing Americans, forcing us Americans to pay higher uh, prices. Now, that's very much like, that kind of reasoning is very much like if you and I we're in a rowboat at sea, and I shoot a hole in my end of the boat. What are you supposed to do? Retaliate by shooting a hole in your end of the boat? That's just that's just foolishness. And so I, I think that uh, uh, to anything that interferes with peaceable voluntary exchange uh, is is a violation of property rights. And moreover, one of the dangerous aspects of the whole debate on tariffs is people say United States trades with Germany. Well, that's nonsense. That is, when I purchase my Mercedes, I as an individual bought it, bought it through an intermediary from 
a German producer. That is, it's not Congress trading with the Parliament of Germany. Or it's not Congress uh, trading with the, with the Diet in, uh, in Japan. It's individual individuals. It's individuals trading with each other. It's not countries trading with one another. I think that when we aggregate things, not only in, in the area of trade, when we aggregate things, we conceal a lot of evil. Good morning, Mr. Williams. My name is Bruce Townsend. It's a pleasure to uh, listen to you today. I have a question uh, deals with uh, our, our federal income tax uh, monstrosity. Um, as an American, I, I work for the federal government. I'll be right up front with that. So, uh, there is some sort of, some sort of uh, method has to exist for funding the federal government for the things that it can and must do. Um, our current income tax system is, is awful. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on the, on whether or not you would support the fair tax. Uh, and for anybody who doesn't know about what the fair tax is, I hope Mr. Williams can give us some insight. Thank you, sir. Well, the fair tax is, uh, is a national sales tax and they, Many many people have argued that it's a far more just tax. Well, um, I would not. I would never support a fair tax uh, or a national sales tax unless we first repealed uh, the Sixteenth Amendment. Because if we did not do that, we find ourselves with an income tax and a sales tax. But I think a more and more a more important question has to do with government spending. That if government is going to spend at all at all levels, federal, state, and local levels of government, over 40% of the GDP, it has to use a ruthless technique. And any tax system would be uh, poor, would violate individual freedoms if government is collecting uh, 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 40% of the national product each year. We're going to have to have an abusive system. So what I'd always argue with people is the, that we should pay attention to federal spending, not to federal taxation. That's, that's, yeah, and, and, and by the way, if the federal government were only spending 3% of the GDP, well, I, I, I think any kind of tax system would be okay. Even the income tax system would be all right. Matter of fact, there's a lady in New Jersey, and I lost track of her name, that if you give her the year that you were born, uh, she will send you out the 1040 for that year. And, and I wrote away to her, and I said, well, I was born in 1936. I know I don't look like it, but I was born in 1936. And she sent me out the tax form, the 1040 form for that year. And it was one page. And I could have filled it out in 10 or 15 minutes at the most. And so we get an abusive tax system when we're trying to uh, raise a lot of money and create a lot of favors. That is, the most powerful committees in the United States Congress are the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee. And these committees that congressmen fight to be on these committees. And these committees are in charge of taxation or dispensing tax favors to various Americans. 
uh, Jay Rich from Reason Foundation. You claim that defense against foreign adversaries who would violate our property rights is a legitimate role of government. But I'm curious of your opinion on government incentives to exaggerate those threats, specifically the spending on the forever wars on terror that started this day 17 years ago. Say, say that last part again. Um, specifically the wars on terror that started um, because of 9-11. But, I mean, if you want to elaborate on other threats that government government may exaggerate to increase spending on them, feel free. Well, I think, uh, I think the federal government has a duty to protect the Americans against uh, – provide for national defense, which is not the same as giving government uh, a, uh, a, a a ticket to go into adventurism around the world. Um, but I think that dealing with ter- with uh, terrorists that come that would come and raise hell in our country, I think we ought to wipe them out. And uh, and I believe that that anybody who violates uh, 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 who attacks our country, uh, uh, we should uh, turn them into uh, a nice radioactive green. <laughs> Gordon Johnson, private citizen, and 92 years old looking back, uh, this is one of the best presentations I've heard as to why government what the limitations on government and what it can do. But I have to wonder, and this is not the subject of our meeting, in a way we're talking about freedom, but what about the people who are dispossessed, who are homeless, who are sick, who cannot take care of themselves? As you said, human love and kindness won't feed New Yorkers. But that doesn't do away with the problem that we have. Is it, are you criticizing the church for basic? Is this a church state, and the church, the church isn't doing what it should do? Should anybody do anything to help the poor? Uh, should it's uh, just you and me? I can't do very much all by myself. Well, well, let me uh, respond to that. Uh, a lot of times, people say we just need food stamps as a program, or else people start. And I say, well, look, we have we uh, our food stamp program did not begin until the sixties, and is there any evidence that there's widespread widespread starvation in the United States before 1916? People dying on the streets because they they could not get medical care, basic medical care. We did it through charity, and Americans, we ought to be very proud of ourselves. Americans are the most generous people on the face of this earth. I believe that we do over. Slightly over eighty percent of all world giving, Americans, uh, the the charitable foundation started in in our country. Uh, and matter of fact, uh, it, it, this this generosity of among Americans was noted for a long time. And when when uh, Alexis de Tocqueville came here to do a study ostensibly on prisons, uh, but he went around the United States just looking at what was going on in our country, and he got back to France, and he was giving lectures. He was saying, those Americans, they just love committees. Somebody becomes widowed, they have a committee. Somebody's barn burns down, they have the committee. And he's talking about the, the, the spirit of generosity among Americans. Now, I personally believe that, <clears throat> that it's not very good when we, let's say you have a, uh, let, let's say that you would have a daughter, She'd make a mistake. She's 16 or 17, make a mistake, have a baby out of wedlock. And would you say to her, well, look, here's $500. 
You sit and watch TV, watch Oprah and stuff like this, and come back next month, you get another $500. And if you make another mistake, have two kids, you get $700. We never do that to anybody that we love, but we do that to poor people. And I think that that giving money or helping people through the state is somewhat irresponsible. That is, uh, churches and private organizations are far more effective at helping people in, in need than, than, than government agencies. And so, so, but I think we have to go back to the point is what did we do before we had all these programs? I mean, for example, if you look back through our history, where did old people die? They died in the homes of their children as opposed to some green room now in some hospice. And, and why, are, why are they in some hospice or some green room? Well, it's because of Social Security. You, you, uh, you've, discharged, you, you've let, you've say, other people should take care of my parents or through the tax code. That is, you get other people to honor your mother and father through the tax code instead of you honoring them yourselves. And I think that, 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 that I think that, that we have in our country, we've done some bad things with generosity. We've caused people to become dependent dependent on the state as opposed to taking the hard knocks and, uh, and, and, and making the way out. You know, when I was a kid, see, I, when I was a kid, I, my mother used to say, you know, you, you make your bed hard, you're going to lie in it, or you're going to stew in your own juice. I mean, the kind of independence that, that I developed because I was raised in, with, uh, uh, you know, on fairly strict limits, as were most Americans of that era. I'm very sure when you're 92, you were raised that same way. I mean, it's a different. It was a different age. One more question. Hey, Christopher, Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, in regards to current events such as Hurricane Florence, what role does government have when it comes to natural disasters? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure, but you know the. If you look at the one of the biggest natural uh, disasters, the, the biggest disasters in our country, natural disasters, was the was the 1903-1906 San Francisco earthquake. San Francisco that San Francisco was rebuilt without government aid, without federal government aid. How in the world did they do that? Rebuild a marvelous city that was destroyed. The Galveston hearth, uh, uh, hurricane of, uh, of 1900, devastating hurricane, but somehow Galveston got back on his feet. So how do they do it without the federal government, without FEMA? How do they do it? Well, we might find out. We might try to find out how they did it. Well, look, folks, thank you very much. give you some reminders about the, the upcoming events. On September 20th, Dr. Tomasi will be here talking about free market fairness. On October 11th, Sir Roger Scruton will be here uh, talking about the conservative approach to uh, uh, private property and free enterprise. Uh, if you would like more information about the entire speaker series, 
it's on the podium outside or you know as you as you come in or you can go to our website and for those watching online if you simply uh, google uh, free markets the ethical economic choice I, I believe it will come up thank you very much